the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Homeownership rates in Africa are abysmal by Western standards. For example, Mozambique, a country with roughly 30 million people, has less than 1,000 mortgages. Mortgage lending is virtually unknown, in part because of the difficulty of collateralizing loans in a country where most property belongs to the state. Empower is a company started by former Zimbabwean Glenn Jordan, now based in the Netherlands by way of South Africa. It's offering Mozambicans mortgage loans through some innovative applications of blockchain technology, and it's about to extend its offering to Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria, and other African countries. This is what Jordan calls the Airbnb of mortgage lending. It connects investors with would-be homeowners, bypassing the banks altogether. There are no background or credit checks, and no one asks you for your last three payslips. This is an entirely new way of looking at mortgage lending. Most mortgage loans are for 20 or even 30 years, sufficiently long to guarantee most people will hit a financial wobble somewhere along the way and potentially lose the home. Empower sidesteps the traditional credit checks by looking at household income and making allowance for potential dips in income. This is crucial in a continent where traditional credit checks debar millions of people from the credit market. We're joined now by Glenn Jordan of Empower. Glenn, good to have you on the MoneyWeb Crypto podcast. Maybe explain how the mortgage system works, why Empower is different, and crucially also, what role does blockchain play in this? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Karen. As you've outlined, the, the mortgage product, and, and effectively to try and defend the banks, the mortgage product is a product that was devised in a completely different time. Basically, it's a product that was devised when people had regular salaries, got paid on the 25th of the month, and worked for an employer forever. The reality is, as you know, today, not only in emerging markets, but across the world, the reality is very, very different. Income is far less structured. Salaries are, employment is not forever. Employment is not for life. And it has many ups and downs. So really what we're saying, but particularly in emerging markets, is that the mortgage product is not fit for purpose. In Africa, more than 80% of income is informal. So immediately, the mortgage excludes 80% of your market. And that is where the whole challenge starts, because how do we account for that informality? How do we make the informal and the invisible visible and formalized? And that's really where the blockchain starts to come in. And the power of the blockchain is really useful for that kind of mechanism. I mentioned in the beginning that Mozambique is a country of 30 million people has less than 1,000 mortgages. I don't know what the comparable figure in South Africa is. I, I recall reading some years ago, it's several million. Just explain why that is. Why is it so low that the banking services haven't filtered down to the mortgage level yet? There are a number of reasons for it. And, and it, generally, they're systemic. And that's part of the challenge with property and home ownership is that it requires a complete functional system. So in South Africa, as you say, we have a very sophisticated, developed sector. So, um, you know, particularly in the old areas, you know, it requires a deed title deed system that works. It requires a legal system that, that implements that deed system. It requires a financial system that supports that. And then the courts, you know, support the processes around that, which then attracts capital into that. 
a number of African countries, you know, went through the socialist phase. Some of them are still in it in terms of where the government owns all the land. So land is not privately owned, which immediately prevents investment into this kind of arena. Even with 99-year leases, the title deeds are not secure, etc. So there are a number of factors. But I think one of the greatest challenges is, is exactly that, is the informality. And so because so much of the economy is informal, there isn't a financial support structure. And <laughs> by definition, a house or a building is, is expensive um, in anybody's books, whatever that, that looks like. And I mean, I, if we just look at it in, in terms of our, my life, or and I'm sure in most of, the, most of the listeners' lives, there are very few of us who could afford a home to pay cash for a home. And that doesn't really matter, you know, in terms of our level of income or where we live. So we need support in order to be able to do that because it's based on a future. It's based on a, you know, a view of the future, which implies income. And that process is not available in, in most countries because, as I say, most of the income is informal, therefore invisible. You've chosen Mozambique to pilot this. Uh, give us an idea or an update on how many mortgages have been extended there. How's it going so far? Yeah, so we chose Mozambique for exactly the reason that two major reasons. One is so often it's perceived and the backlog in housing, there's a backlog of more than 50 million homes across Africa. And that's in a, in a, in a continent that, as you know, is very young and the populations are booming and the cities are growing at a, at a significant rate across Africa from a, a population and an urbanization perspective. And the perception around housing is that it's poverty. And that's what I wanted to prove in Mozambique as a starting point that it's not poverty. And the, how I even got into this was I was living in Cape Town and in Hart Bay and literally 300 meters away from where I was living is Emazamayetu. The whole informality and the informal sector and the residents of Emazamayetu were paying between four and 11 times more per square meter then I was paying in the formal sector 300 meters away. And so the perception is that it's poverty. And the reality is, is that it's not poverty, but it's structural. So the, it's the systems. And that, in order to prove that, I wanted to demonstrate that because if we'd done it in South Africa, people would say, oh, yeah, but South Africa is sophisticated. It's got high levels of income. That's not the case. So we wanted to prove it in a country where the incomes are low and the challenges are much more significant than they are in South Africa in terms of that demonstration. And just to highlight it, we grew the home loan market by 5%. Now that's off a ridiculously low base, and that's just with the proof of concept. But the whole concept was to demonstrate that if we put together a forward-looking product instead of a backward-looking one, people lease their homes and have to pay rental, whether they're living in Emazamietu or where they're living in Beira, Mozambique. So what we're also expecting is for people to, to save while they rent in order to buy a home, which I can't do. I can't do that. So, And for people on who are at a, at a lower level of income is, is obviously more significantly challenging. So the whole process, we've done everything historically. Well, I can't say the wrong way, but the results of the way we've done it are evident. And that is that we have as I say, you know, if you have access to the financial resources, then you, you effectively are privileged. And then the vast majority, the more than 80%, have no access and therefore um, are destined to either self-build or live in shanties or, or live in a, a, a abysmal conditions. Yeah. I mean, if you travel across Africa, you see how the housing market develops organically and it's, it's a cash-based market. 
Um, you know, in Ghana, when I was working up there, you would see people building houses. They, they would accumulate some cash, but it would take years, sometimes eight or 10 years before that house would be complete because they were reliant on cash. So you seem to have unlocked the key here a little bit. Take us through some of the obstacles that you mentioned, why South Africa has a more developed mortgage market. Uh, it, it's got a legal system that I guess will uh, enforce those contracts which you sign with a bank and then repossess if needs be. Uh, but you also have an entirely different view of looking at household income. And maybe just explain some of the mechanics of that. Yeah. And, and I think one of the issues around it, I think it's, it's also, it's the philosophy of blockchain and that is around decentralization. And I think that's one of the, the mechanisms also around uh, property and housing. Property is always a local issue. Um, so to try and define solutions that work at scale is always the challenge and has been the challenge. And again, it's one of the reasons that we have had to date consistent failure. Because the reality is, is we can't define something centrally and then impose it down. So the way we're approaching it is, is that we believe that the intelligence is at the edges of the system. In other words, it's the local people who know and understand the systems and can deal with those issues. It's not for it's not for a centralized mechanism to try and attempt to do. So the, really what we're doing is utilizing the principles of microfinance and startup is that we support on a small scale to start. And again, the blockchain is ideal for that because it enables a small start, proof of concept, demonstrate success. And then because of the low cost of transaction, you're able to then just support that on an ongoing basis. So, you know, if, if you think about it, most property developments and developers will, you know, not get out of bed for anything, you know, less than a hundred million kind of scenario. So everybody's looking for mass scale, mass opportunity. And at a level that is obviously that brings around scale, you know, reduction of cost through scale. But the other approach is to use what we call massive small, and that is to use small scale on a large scale. And by that, we mean use local developers, support them at low risk, and then be able to then support that as they grow. And that's how we've demonstrated the concept in Mozambique. You know, the property issues, the land ownership issues, all of that are dealt with by the local partner who then is able to provide the finance to the end user. And again, you know, so much of, of the centralized systems, you look at quality controls and, and mechanisms to manage that. We, in fact, if we decentralize that and we leave it to the market to determine the power of that is decentralized. What about this issue of income where you've mentioned already 80% of income earned in Africa is informal, so you don't have pay slips, credit checks are out of the question. But then we also know that in the informal sector, if you even look back during the COVID times where income disappeared or dropped significantly, how do you accommodate that? Because on the one side, you've got somebody who's prepared to fund this, this development of this house. Uh, but he does want to make sure that he receives his return, correct? Exactly. And that's the fundamental key part around we're not going to create success at scale unless we prove that. And so very much so, the proof is demonstrable by managing the lease to own payments. So a key part of it, as you say, is rather than trying to look back and have a credit history to look at income, one of the things that our local partner in Mozambique did was look at expenditure. So they look at both, they do look at income and expenditure, but expenditure is also a key element to it because 
what you're currently paying for your rental is gives you an indication of actually what you can afford. I mean, I have the same here in the Netherlands. The irony is I, I couldn't get a mortgage here in the Netherlands, but my rental is significantly higher than my mortgage would be, which again is just a, you know, a function of the financial system. So what we're trying to demonstrate is that if you can pay the rental, then effectively you should be able to qualify for the lease to own. On that basis, you then enter into a lease agreement, which is again, as I say, is forward looking and then it's managed like a traditional lease if you don't pay. So it's all around managing risk in our alternative in alternative ways. How do we look at risk? There's no magic bullet for risk, but if we can reduce risk at every level, that enables the investor still to make return and to reduce the costs, which is what we're trying to do. So reduce costs, enable us to report on returns. And so one of the products that we do in terms of the blockchain and the use of the blockchain is we, we record the payments onto the blockchain. Now, what that does is it gives us verified transaction data on which we can report back to the investors so that they don't have to wait for an income statement, you know, audited financial statements from the service provider who they provided the funding to. They don't have to wait for that. And, you know, literally that can be 18 months, two years before they get some data back. So they can get verified, immediate, immutable data on how the portfolio is performing. And that enables the investor also to be not stuck in a um, an instrument for 20 years into a mortgage instrument, but it's more like a, an income, uh, a digital a digital instrument that then becomes tradable based on information that's available from the project. So it sounds a bit like securitization, where you have uh, you're basically converting a long term loan instrument into something fairly short term. If the person wants to sell out after a few months. Presumably he can, but then the question is, are there buyers on the other side of that who would be willing to, to purchase that instrument? Exactly. So if we're going to crowd an investment into the space, which is what's required, that's a key part of, of what is required. So absolutely, as you say, it does require somebody on the other side willing to buy. But we believe that the more we can demonstrate this, just as it is in, in securitization of mortgages, the more it will become standard. And therefore, exactly based on the information that you are gleaning from the project, you'll be able to determine, well, we put it into the system so that it's priced. It can give you a, a, you know, a theoretical price, and then you can determine whether what you do with that in terms of a trade, whether you want to buy or sell based on the theoretical price. And where are you getting investors from? To date, we actually source them when, <laughs> when we initially proposed this to some of the financial institutions. They sort of smiled sweetly and said, great, you know, prove the concept first. So we actually initially did it through crowdfunding. We've secured it through through people who are passionate about making a difference and um, building something, building the foundations of something that they can believe work. So I guess if you're really going to scale this up, you're going to have to get the big money. That would be the institutions involved. And you're going to have to prove the concept does work. And one question that does arise out of that is what happens if the person stops paying the, the lease, the lease to own? Do they get evicted the same way that they would in South Africa? What happens? So to answer your first part of your question first, absolutely, it's around attracting in the large portions of capital. We're not going to address a backlog of the millions of homes that are required in order to you know, uplift living conditions without attracting large capital. And so very much so, everything that we're doing is geared with that understanding that this has to really crowd in capital and make it attractive for capital investors. So very much that's part of it. This, to answer the second part of your question, the, the lease to own, that's the key part around managing the risk. 
because the ownership is only transferred at the end of the period once the once the unit has been paid for. So it's and yes, it's managed on a traditional kind of lease basis. Obviously, one of the aspects is is that there is a purchase element going to that, so that there should be a capital portion which is accessible. And again, depending on the local conditions, how much of that is accessible um, and how long that period can be while you you know while you're going through a bad patch in your income, just as you were saying earlier. Everybody goes through those bad patches. You know, that is determined by, you know, by the local, again, the local provider, that intelligence, that relationship is between them. But the platform that we are building just supports whatever that that looks like. Okay. So a lot of the calls that would be made about, okay, this person clearly cannot afford this lease to own. We're going to have to get him out of the property and, and hand it over to somebody else. That's made by your local partner, your local developer. Absolutely. That's the whole thing around decentralization is that the, it is the local person who does that. It's the relationships, it's the legal mechanisms. All of that is known, understood, and dealt with at a local level. You know, As I was saying earlier around property being a local issue, that's very much the case. And again, to try and centralize those rules is, is also misguided. Does that not leave a little bit too much discretion in the hands of the developer? In, in the case where you have an investor who's putting up the money, you know, say, well, hang on, you know, th- this, uh, this property hasn't actually received an income for six months. I think it's time we should do something. But because the, the local developer's got a soft spot or something like that, he, he allows the person to stay. How do you manage that part of it? Well, that's where the blockchain comes in because that information is recorded and re- verified and reported back. So that information becomes available immediately. So as soon as the payments of, are, are, are lagging, as soon as things are falling you know, on the wayside, you can immediately see that. So it's not a surprise. So the point around that is it becomes the ability then to enter into that and say, excuse me, what's happening here? And that's part of the underwriting process is in terms of you know, monitoring that and then, then and communicating then to ask what the question is and to put the pressure on. So the whole thing around that is around, it's again, it's around information and processes to support that so that you don't get a surprise where six months have gone past and he hasn't been collecting. The other issue around that is, is it's about alignment of incentives. And I think, again, that's where blockchain technology is, is really transformational because the way the system is, is structured and developed is that everybody is incentivized on everybody else's success. And so a key part of that is, is that for the developer or the service provider, in order for him to continue his business model, him or her, he or she is going to have to demonstrate ongoing success. So immediately the pressure is on in order to be able to to deliver on what they've said they're going to deliver because if that fails, the business model fails. And again, that's where I use the, the principles of microfinance and startup is that you're only building that you only at risk for significant amounts once the smaller amounts and successes have been proven. And so again, that's another methodology for de-risking it. You know, by that stage, if there's one person who's not paying, you've got a bigger portfolio. But you start by putting, you know, by the service provider needing to demonstrate at a small scale that they can deliver and that they can perform and ensure that the funds are are repay um, are paid. So that the investor can get their returns. What about interest rates? So we just yesterday in South Africa we had a fifty basis point increase in interest rates. That of course impacts borrowers everywhere, particularly in the mortgage sector. 
So if you're in Mozambique, I'm not sure what the prevailing interest rates are, but do they apply there or do you have some other system of managing that? So that's an interesting one. And it's part of what the entire process, again, of blockchain that we're working on. We're not there yet. But the the interesting part of that is really what we're looking at is, is there a way that we can create an arbitrage between the local interest rate and the international interest rate with hard currency and structure it in such a way that we can reduce that cost of capital? Because to your point, you know, the the mortgage rate in Mozambique, if you can get one, I think is somewhere between 22 and 30% which is unaffordable for most people anyway, which is another major reason why, you know, the numbers are so low. And yet in, so, and your risk-free rate is around 22%. So we need to look at ways that we can support this mechanism and give returns in that meet people's requirements, but actually at different, different market segments. And I think that's part of what we're looking at in terms of the mixing and matching of the, of the financial options Again, to be able to mesh that digitally makes it far more cost-effective to do so. Okay, you've referred to this as the Airbnb of mortgage lending, which I think is is quite a catchy way of describing it. So basically, what you're doing is you've got uh, you're connecting investors with would-be homeowners on the other side and developers, of course. So explain how that is going to change. Do you think the the mortgage market in Africa? You clearly have big ambitions. Oh, absolutely. You know. My work will never be done. You know, there's a backlog of 50 million, as I said, that's today. By, you know, within a decade, that that number will have increased significantly. So absolutely, our work will never be done. But so we do have large ambitions. But the only way we're going to do that is to build, is to enable capital to be crowded in, as you say, and to be able to utilize the intelligence on the ground and use the massive small to be able to, to scale it. And that can only be done effectively just like Airbnb became the largest uh, accommodation provider, bigger than Hilton, without owning a room, our objective as the platform is to link the two, the two requirements together. What I want to highlight, though, is the loan is not to the end user. The loan is to a service provider, as you said, and that service provider in country can be either a developer, a property manager, or a financial institution. What we're doing is providing the tools for that that service provider to be able to provide lease to own, to be able to manage and record those payments, and then provide that information and flows and flows back to the investor. In order to attract the investor in into this space, as we have previously discussed, it's around reducing costs and providing information. And again, the best way to do that is to digitize these instruments, provide the flows and provide the information. And all of that is done on blockchain so that it becomes timeless and verified. It's not cryptocurrency, it's blockchain and it's the immutability and the process to be able to do that, which is the key part around building this because the platform is built in such a way that it can work with fiat but it can also drop down to value transfer level because all of it is all of that information is is stored on the on the blockchain how did you get started in this have you got a background in in blockchain or in tech or in banking not at all not at all i was involved with the fintech in cape town and i actually met with a dutch asset manager who had been look, briefed to look at pensions for people who weren't formally employed and he challenged me 
to find a solution to pensions, actually. And it was really an interesting because it was such a it's such a fundamental piece of actually the building of wealth. And and so it, it sat with me and it, and it, it just sat in my brain and I couldn't get rid of it. And so I started researching and started looking at how we could save money through, you know, through discounts on things and reward mechanisms and income statement and realized that property and personal balance sheets and property was such a fundamental building block to the creation of wealth. Um, that, and as I said earlier around the, the Imazamietu example, the realization that people are paying huge amounts of money to rent a piece of land on which they then need to build their shack indicates that it's not a function of income. It's a function of systems. And then that was what challenged me to say, how do we find alternative structures to make this happen? And how do we reduce the costs? Because at the end of the day, as we were discussing earlier, the interest rates, the costs, all of that, again, the entire mortgage is geared for the dealing of risk and for the dealing of risk for the financial institution that doesn't take into account the realities in the ground. And those kinds of costs are just too high. But we can use technology to reduce those costs. And that's the exciting part. And, and really, it was around the decentralization part that, that made me that somebody said to me, you know, have a look at, at blockchain. And, and I, I, my initial, I was very skeptical initially because I was also, you know, had been looking at, at, um, at Bitcoin and all of this and the, and the hype around it. And, and so I was very, very skeptical. But the more I dug into it and the more I researched, the, the more excited I got about the potential of this and around the creation of value in communities as opposed to countries. You know, we're so used to thinking of the creation of value within a country, but actually as this kind of technology spreads, we can create ecosystems of value creation where everybody can benefit and that doesn't matter around the borders. And that part for me was extremely exciting and is what got me into it. You know, when you started talking, I was thinking that you're probably a threat to the traditional banks. But as you've been carrying on, and I understand it a bit better, I can see that your whole idea, of course, is to involve the bank. It's a fairly inclusive system if it's taken to its logical conclusion. Because you, you will need investors, and they, of course, have got the big pots of money that you would no doubt like to, to get them involved. But I, I want to find out from you, what's the pipeline of interest, both from investors and from uh, developers? The, the, I guess the end user in this case would be the homeowner. So I'm not quite sure how you define the end user, but is it the developer? Is it the, is it the homeowner? <laughs> That's what, part of the challenge is defining this. Because, yeah, you're right, the end user from the power pay aspect the, the end product, if you like, is the lease to own, but that's supplied by the uh, by the in-country partner, the service provider, as we call them in, in our ecosystem. But just to address your first question around the banks, just to, just to give you, just this morning, I had a conversation with one of the banks in one of the African countries who has, has, has understood the potential of what we're doing in a relationship with them. So as you say, we are absolutely not competing with the banks. We are effectively pre-running the banks. And that's the exciting part, I think, for the banks, because we are enabling and proving a market that then can be formalized for them. So they from effectively exactly what their challenge is the systems, processes, products, infrastructure, everything that they have, and even the legal structures, you know, in terms of their capital requirements, none of us want to lose the 
our deposits. So I understand the, the risk aversion of entering into this market. But from the point of view of being able to support this and as supporting the market development, exactly that. It's the 80% that's not been addressed by the banking sector. That's our market. We don't want to compete with the banks because if the mortgage is working, fantastic. The mortgage product works. That's not where we want him to fish. We're wanting to be in that pond where the banks are not in at the moment. So effectively, as, as you know, it's the it's that market which the banks haven't addressed or can't address because the costs are too high. So a bit sim more similar to the Capitec model, I suppose. You know, traditionally, it's going into that market segment that the traditional banks couldn't go. But that's the, the segment that we're going and devising the support mechanisms to provide those products and route to market, again, which is cost effective. So as you said, the, the discussions and the appetite is massive. Just in Mozambique, the, the extension, just to give an example of how big it is, there is such significant pent-up demand for this kind of solution that the developer was talking his daughter, who's 10 years old, was talking about her father, what her father did as a job. The teacher heard about what he was doing and phoned to question whether this was real. Four teachers from that school became customers. <laughs> so we always have mentioned that it was actually sold. Four of these, this, the houses were sold by a 10-year-old. And that gives you a level of pent-up demand. When we say there's a backlog of 50 million homes, that is a pent-up demand for 50 million homes. That's not a charity mechanism in order to do that because people who are living in these areas are already paying more per square meter than in the formal market segment. It's just that we don't know how to address them. On Mozambique itself, the interest rate you said, the, if you apply for a mortgage and, and if you can even get one, uh, you'd be paying 22 to 30%. What are you charging there? So the local service provider there, through the mechanism that we've done, we're testing it at 12%. That's phenomenal. That's quite extraordinary. So as you said, you're arbitraging between the uh, the demands of investors overseas where interest rates are lower and in in Mozambique and you've you, you're probably sitting right there in the middle somewhere and as I say that that was just the proof of concept we wanted to demonstrate you know what we could do with that and again define it because as you know it's defined on risk so the whole thing around it is this perception of risk that this level of market doesn't pay but the reality is is that they do pay right. And particularly, again, as evidenced in our proof of concept, if you provide a quality product at an affordable price, the demand here is virtually unlimited. So if somebody's not paying, based on the lease to own model, they can be replaced. So it's actually, the risk is significantly lower than perceived. And that's part of, of what we're seeking to address and demonstrate through the, you know, th again, through the information of this immutable by providing it on the blockchain and making it immutable and verified. Okay, so you've kicked off in Mozambique, and I mentioned in the beginning that you're looking at other countries, including Kenya, Nigeria. Um, are these countries, do they face the same kind of problem where there's a very undeveloped mortgage market? The ratio in Nigeria of mortgages is, exact, is exactly the same as Mozambique. So absolutely. So not it is a massive problem across not just Africa, actually. This is an emerging market problem where there's informality of income. And interestingly enough, 
I've already had approaches from developed markets for the same solution because, again, so much of income is becoming informal and and um, erratic. So for people who are working in gig economy or or contracts or um, you know project based, again the the banks won't provide a mortgage. So so in the developed world, this kind of approach is also um, of interest. So it's very interesting. So yeah, absolutely, the demand is 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 significant. And on the lease-to-own model, how many years are we talking about there before the end user actually gets title to the property? The contract in in Mozambique again that's set by the that is will be set by the local service provider, but the contract in Mozambique is seven years. Seven years, which is pretty much what you would the the, the period that you would pay for a car purchase. And there, there's been a lot of discussion here in South Africa about it. It, it. 20 years is too long because people lose their jobs. Uh, we go through a recession and so on. Seven years, you, you've got more than a fighting chance of actually uh, keeping up with the repayments and then ending up with ownership of the property after that period of time. So Absolutely. You're 100% correct. And the issue around it is is around the, the erratic income. But again, a lot of the communities that we're dealing with and the households that we're dealing with, Oftentimes, it's not a single person. So, although the contractual issues, and again, you know, again in the West, we we so we very have to take a very individualistic approach. But in reality, if there is an opportunity for a family to own the home, whether that revenue comes from the diaspora or from um, you know from other sources, oftentimes that funding will come in again, based on an affordable product at an affordable price. The thing around informal income is that it's there. It's just not visible. And that's already been proven in Mozambique. In terms of the payments, everybody, there was a more than a 5% uh, payment, forward payment, when the contract started, which was literally in the first month, t- two months in Mozambique, which surprised us completely because we were expecting the cost of moving. You know, anytime you move into a new home, there's always costs that you don't anticipate and you want new new stuff to go in it. And yet, people were already ahead of their payments payment structure within the first two months because, as I'm saying, that you know the sources of income people were contributing, and that's the kind of mechanisms that we need to support. Right, and I think you're also planning to bring this to South Africa, correct? Yeah, absolutely. A fascinating discussion, uh, very innovative thinking. Uh, I want to thank you, Glenn Jordan, and I wish you the very best of luck with this because this this is quite a revolutionary concept, and I'm pretty sure you're going to be well-received wherever you go in Africa and presumably other parts of the world as well. You've already hinted that that's going to be happening too. Absolutely. By the way, and just tell us uh, what kind of countries would be interested in adopting this. I'm talking about developed countries. Well, as I say, it's, it's literally... <laughs> <laughs> the first area of interest was actually from the US, hmm. which absolutely astounded me, to be honest. That was the last thing I was expecting. But it was from the US because there are so many people who are working in, in the gig economy. Glenn Jordan, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us on the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast. And we look forward to having you back again for an update. I look forward to it. And thanks very much. Good to chat. Thanks a lot. For listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.